Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of TV Show and Tell, the podcast about how and why TV gets made. I'm David Bodicum, and recently the great and the good of the formats industry have convened at Cannes, France, for the MIP TV international television market. Now, we thought it might be fun to give you a flavour of what it's like to be at this event, as well as what kind of shows are being sold this year. So my usual co-host, Justin Scroggy, has sent back these audio snippets as he walks along Cannes' sunny, if somewhat windy, harbour front. So I'm walking along the quay where a lot of yachts and super yachts are berthed. In days gone by, uh, big companies used to rent these yachts for the week of MIP TV and MIPCOM in order to hold all their meetings and also entertain their more important clients. I think those days have gone. I haven't seen any yachts that are uh, rented out that way, but it was always a very exciting way to do business, to step on somebody's yacht and be given a drink and sit in the sunshine on the water and do business. But <laughs> as I say, I'm afraid those days have gone. So looking at some of the shows that uh, have been highlighted at TV this week, um, one of them is called The Musical of Your Life, which uh, launched in northern Belgium uh, at the end of last year. And basically it's a bit like This Is Your Life, but instead of a celebrity being interviewed about their lives and having friends and family come on to talk about how they were involved in their lives, they have people who basically construct uh, a musical about their lives. So different parts of their lives are told through the medium of song um, in quite dramatic and emotional ways in front of them. There are a number of shows that are based around recreating aspects of the movies. So in the UK, we recently had The Real Dirty Dancing. Uh, there's a number of shows like this. Uh, one's called Dating Like the Stars, where couples get to recreate famous love scenes from different movies, uh, which is quite funny, uh, considering that most of those love scenes were actually filmed in front of a full crew uh, with uh, relevant directors to handle the sex scenes and things like that. And in this case, the same applies. So they have to recreate these scenes with director, crew, camera assistants and everybody watching. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure how that's a romantic thing to do, um, but it's very funny um, and it leads to some quite surprising moments. There's also a spate of formats that are to do with dating in the past. Uh, we talked on TV show and tell a while ago about the courtship, which is basically Bridgerton or Jane Austen time, where singletons go back into the past into a stately home and go through the rituals of love 
uh, and dating as they were in the 19th, 18th and the 19th century. This seems to have been played out in a number of formats and a number of countries with shows like Back to Love, where again people go to a stately home and they go through the usual ball, the masked ball, and wooing their suitors uh, in traditional ways. I'm not sure about these shows. It's one of those things I think which make a great trailer where you put it all together and you actually feel like you're watching something recreating the 19th century. But when you're actually watching a full episode, I suspect that because the participants, the suitors, the singletons are not actors, they're just regular people from Essex and Dorset and whatever it might be, um, that recreating that magic won't be there. It'll all feel a bit stiff and fake, but I'm happy to be proved wrong. Staying on the dating theme, there's a number of dating shows are trying to find a different way into a perennial subject. So there's a show called Dating with Dogs, where basically it's all around whether you fall in love with a possible suitor's pooch before you meet them, and indeed whether the pooches themselves get on. But if you like their pooch and they like they like your pooch, and both pooches like each other, and you get to meet in person with your dogs, go for a walk, see if you like each other and take it from there. There's another show called Tunnel of Love, where you have two sets of people, um, basically pairs who are best friends. They're separated, and they're put into two different houses, and then they try to pair up their mate with somebody that they think that would be good for them, and who they think they would like to uh, hook up with. The two houses are connected by a tunnel, and it's inside that tunnel that these encounters take place. The twist is that the tunnel is in the dark, so <laughs> that's the situation in which they meet in the tunnel of love. I've also seen quite a nice twist on the cooking competition. There are four takeaway chefs who are competing, and each of them builds in the studio a kind of simple pop-up restaurant on a theme of their choice and present themselves to the judges. Um, they each then have to prepare a takeaway meal in their kitchens, which is then boxed up, put on a moped and taken off to a number of families at home. And then in a sort of rather goggle boxy sort of way, the family simply receive the takeaways as takeaways and judge them without knowing anything about where they've come from or who's cooked it. So it's quite nice because the families of the judges and the chefs have the challenge of not only making a nice meal, but fitting it into a standard container and ensuring that when it arrives at the other end, that it's still hot, edible, appropriate, hasn't congealed, things haven't mixed into each other and so on. So it's a different sort of challenge, but it's one that it's very easy for people at home and obviously people on the show to judge in a different way. So it's cooking with limits, which I always like. I've seen several shows here that uh, feature Gordon Ramsay. I was having uh, supper uh, a few nights ago with one of the Future 30, which is a group of young people, young entrepreneurs who've been identified um, as the future of our industry. And we were talking about Gordon Ramsay and he was telling me that Gordon Ramsay has a huge social media following and is a very big star 
in a Gen Z generation um, in a way that I found quite surprising since I've kind of grown up with Gordon Ramsay and would assume that his appeal was largely older. And this comes down to the fact that a lot of his older shows like Kitchen Nightmares have been chopped up into viral segments for social media and these are enormously popular and very often people only know Gordon through these episodes, these very short episodes, and I've never actually seen the full half-hour or one-hour shows. One of the shows that he has here is called Next Level Chef. It's uh, on in America, and it features uh, an extraordinary set. It's three full kitchens on top of each other, big kitchens. The top kitchen is the absolute bee's knees. It's a fully professional chef's kitchen with everything you could possibly need to make an extraordinary meal. The next level down is a basic but competent kitchen, maybe just one step above a home kitchen, basic cooking facilities, but certainly something that you can make a decent meal in. And the lowest level, the basement level, is the kitchen from hell sort of kitchen you'd find at the back of some seedy restaurant somewhere. Um, It's dirty, the equipment is all old and tarnished. And there is a lift, a dumbwaiter that goes between the three levels with the ingredients on it. So the team that are in the top kitchen get to pick the pick of the ingredients, as basically happens in food markets and things like that where you know the Savoy send their people out to buy ingredients and they get the best ingredients first (laughs) so it's kind of recreating that bit of reality then whatever is left goes down the dumbwaiter to the next level and they choose their ingredients and then it goes down to the next level all the way down to the basement and they get to cook with whatever's left so given those circumstances the teams are competing to get up to the next level and to knock the team above them um, down a level by cooking, despite the circumstances that they're in, um, an extraordinary meal that earns them promotions. They literally move on up. It's exciting, it's very, very visual, and at some level, ha-ha, it does in some way reflect reality. So look out for that one when it comes to the UK. Just dodging through the traffic. Traffic's always bad in Cannes on the Quezettes and it's particularly bad during festival times. Uh, The city fathers decide this is the best time to dig up all the roads and repave them. Rather strangely for us, so many of our regular haunts that we meet at have been demolished, or not just closed down, but actually demolished or dug up. Uh, so there's been a lot of hastily rearranged meetings when you discover at the last minute that the place that you're meeting doesn't exist anymore is simply, in several cases, a hole in the road. Stepping outside the conventional, um, there have been a number of new formats here from Korea, which of course at the moment is riding high because of the Masked Singer. This is called Sell Your Haunted House, where your estate agent is also an exorcist and has the power to pick up the negative vibrations in your haunted house. So in order to sell the house, she has to resolve 
the issues and conflicts of the ghosts in your house in order to be able to make it suitable for someone to buy. However, at the same time, the story of the ghost um, can be part of the sales appeal. Obviously, once they've resolved the issue and made the ghost happy. <laughs> so, sell your haunted house. It does seem to be a market of hybrids. So in another hybrid from Korea, there's a show called The Wooing Choir. 30 single men are formed into a choir and have to perform as a choir to an audience of singletons and try to impress them with their singing ability, but also their harmonization. So I suppose it's sort of the ultimate sort of boy band experience, except on a larger scale. As they get whittled down in the course of the competition, they form smaller harmony groups, which obviously create a gradually more intimate atmosphere. They're working in teams, and those teams get eliminated and get smaller until, ideally, the best wooers are out there in front of the audience of singletons, then who they who then decide who they'd like to go out with. The Bloody Game is another Korean format that takes some of its inspiration from the movie Parasite. Um, it's a, quite a controversial winner-takes-all show where 10 men and women are locked into uh, a building um, with no contact with the outside world and they have to compete for the top prize, which is worth about 300 million krona. I think it's actually a show that we should devote more time to in another episode but one of the twists in it is that when people are eliminated rather than leave the building they go down into the basement of the building unknown unbeknownst to the remaining contestants and from there they can compete to try and get back into the show by whatever means possible so they can sneak up onto the upper floor uh, steal food sabotage anything they like to try and get back into the game. So that's called The Bloody Game. And uh, as I said, let's talk about it in more detail in a later episode. Meanwhile, I think there are full episodes on YouTube where you can go and watch it. Uh, it certainly has huge fans and Korea is extremely good at these kind of complex psychological games that play out um, over a, a period of time in a way that uh, we don't normally have the broadcasting space to do. One enormous pleasure from coming to Cannes this time is to see some of our friends from Ukraine. Uh, one of my friends particularly who has left Kiev, Konta Lviv, and is now currently based in Warsaw in Poland. She's here with a very important message, really. She uh, normally has a senior role in, in television in the Ukraine. And what she's been telling us is that people want to work, but they want to work in Ukraine. So all our emphasis, of course, is rightly on refugees and so on. But one of the other problems is that for people who are in Ukraine, their jobs, their work is simply dried up. So she is uh, giving a lot of encouragement to people here in television, jobs with power, uh, with the ability to make things happen, to say, you know, what can you do to provide paid work in television 
through the international market for people who have high experience in working in television in Ukraine and who need not only work but money uh, because that's a way of actually keeping industries going as well as allowing people to eat, feed their families, find heat and shelter and all the rest of it. So that's been an interesting challenge to the television community and to the international television community. And there are some quite interesting initiatives that are happening in response to that, um, which um, hopefully we'll be able to report back on more in the weeks to come. And Justin will be back with me in person next time. However, as a little bonus, here's a little more from last week's interview with Bob Bowden that we couldn't quite cram in. In 1984, Bob was the executive overseeing Press Your Luck at the time when a contestant called Michael Larson found a way to beat the game. Here's Bob's recounting of the story. I was the executive on the show at the time, but unfortunately I was not in the studio that day. One of my bosses didn't want me to work on weekends and uh, said, just find out what happened later. And boy, did I find out. I got a call late in the day from Michael Brockman, who was the, the head of the department. And he said, did you hear what happened on Press Your Luck today? And I said, no, I didn't. And he explained to me what happened with Michael Larson. The allegory goes, the story goes that Michael memorized the patterns on the board. And when he appeared on the show, he had a formula to continually hit the square that had no whammies in it and only had varying big bucks content. So he just kept hitting big bucks, big bucks, big bucks, time after time wound up winning over $100,000 on a show that generally capped out at $25,000. And when asked after the show how he did it, he explained exactly what happened, is he had recorded the show on what was then a new technology called a VCR and watched it frame by frame, wrote down all the patterns, and there were only five patterns at the time, and he memorized them. So when I got to Game Show Network, Many years later, one of the first things I did is because the, the Game Show Network had, had just bought the reruns to Press Your Luck. And I said to my boss, I said, I want to do a documentary on this scandal because the episodes originally only aired one time. They were never repeated. Uh, they didn't go into the rerun package that was on the USA Network. And this story had never really been told publicly. So I wanted to tell the story in a big way. Bill Carruthers was still around. Um, he was the producer, wasn't in good health, but he was still with us. Peter Tamarkin, the host, was around. Unfortunately, Michael Larson was not. But many of the people who were involved with the show and his brother, who spoke for him, were willing to do this documentary. And it was for nine years the highest rated episode of any show in the history of Game Show Network. I'm very, very proud of it. It was a just an awesome experience. It's on YouTube. You can find it. It's called Big Bucks, The Press Your Luck Scandal. And uh, I was in it for a brief moment because I was involved at CBS at the time. 
But uh, that's one of my proudest achievements was uh, revealing this scandal that had occurred and bringing it up to date. And then the, the icing on the cake for me was we had Whammy, which was the revised version of Press Your Luck in production at the time the special was airing. And I was able to achieve a really cool reunion of the two contestants who had originally faced Michael Larson on Press Your Luck playing against Michael's brother, representing him. And we did a reunion episode uh, to recall that fateful day. And spoiler alert, Michael's brother won, but it wasn't fixed. The technology had advanced by this time and it was truly random. There were no patterns to memorize. So it was legit. And I can vouch that the documentary is a very good watch. We've put a link in the show notes if you'd like to see it for yourself. That's it for now. We'll be back soon with a full episode, including our take on the sale of the UK's Channel 4 and the downfall of Netflix. Until then, from Justin and myself, this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>